Welcome to episode 201 of Speaking of Mysteries. I'm Nancy Clare, and joining me on the podcast is Robert Povey to talk about Under Pressure, which was published earlier this month on August 4th, 2020. Welcome to the podcast, Rob, and thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. I think we, before we dive into the specifics of Under Pressure, uh, we need to talk about Dr. Lucas Page, the novel's protagonist. He's the ultimate hyphenate. He's a former FBI agent, astrophysicist, best-selling author, university professor, a man of phenomenal mental acuity and extraordinary physical limitations. So where did he come from? We also left out Grouch. He's a supreme Grouch. That's oh, no, no. We're going <laughs> to get to that, Rob. We're going to get to the Grouch part. Okay. So the question is, where, where did Lucas come from? Yes. I don't know. I just met him in chapter three, climbing the stairs. I mean, that, or, that, that, chapter two, that's basically when Lucas popped into my life. That being said, uh, I'm not going to say that he wasn't a, a subconscious and even conscious antidote to the to the know-nothingism we see being championed by all kinds of people, uh, you know, across the political spectrum lately. So I, I, I wanted a smart-thinking character. I didn't want another pugilist to just walk into the room and beat everybody up and left. Uh, although there's definitely enough places for those characters in storytelling, I wanted something a little bit more that would keep me engaged for, for a little bit longer. And I wanted just to bring back something that we, I think, you know, we don't see enough of these days, just people, you know, using their minds. So uh, we'll get back to Lucas Page in a second and his uh, misanthropy. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about New York City, which is the location for Under Pressure and its predecessor, City of Windows. You just put that city through the ringer. Yes. And I can't tell if your books are payons to the city or something else. So what did New York City do to deserve this? Uh, well, it's, it's kind of a combination of things. Uh, my folks had an apartment in New York for 23 years when I was growing up. So I spent a lot of weekends and, you know, holidays and stuff in New York. I had three cars stolen in New York. Um, I think it's probably the first place I woke up outside, not remembering what I'd been doing the night before. <laughs> so, so, so New York was, uh, was I'm not going to say a stomping ground, but it's a, it's a place that I have a lot of experience. Uh, it was sort of a second home for me for a long time. So I, it's, it, New York, a friend of mine who's since died said, the thing about New York you have to remember is it's a serious city. And it's absolutely true. I mean, you saw a guy having a heart attack on the street one time and someone was trying to take his shoes. So... So it's, it's a little bit of both. I love New York, and it also, when I drive, if, if ever I, when I leave, I, I drive across the George Washington Bridge, I always go, ah, okay. I think I feel the same when I uh, take the uh, train to the plane leaving to go to JFK. It's like, all right, I survived. Yeah, it's a completely different ecosystem, absolutely. Um, so now we're going to get back to Lucas, and he's a, a curmudgeon slash misanthrope. Uh, and I think he's entitled to it, but the only modifier to that is he's a devoted family man and a dog lover. So Manhattan may be blowing up as it is and under pressure, but Lucas is keen to make sure one of his kids gets to her interview at LaGuardia, which is New York City's high school for the arts. So I found that a fascinating juxtaposition when you're building a character. It, he's not a cartoon character. He's not a... a um, from a, you know, he's not from a, a graphic novel. He's, he's sort of fully rounded. Thank you. That, that, that was an effort on my part. So yes, I, I think he is too. Um, 
Lucas, the thing with Luke, he's, he's an optimist. He really is. And the problem, I mean, part of it comes in just with his, his schooling and education in mind and, and the fact that, I mean, he understands the mechanics of the universe and how, how things work. And he understands that, you know, the ant on the ground or the, the caterpillar in the tree or the, 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 the children that he has all technically amount to the same thing in the cosmos where, you know, the life of, an, of our child today is worth the life of an ant tomorrow. I mean, you know, it, history forgets everyone. Uh, so I think Lucas is aware of that, and he's aware that the best he can do is, is right now for the people he cares about. So I think that that's where part of it comes in. And the other part, he, he's, he's honestly a good person. He's just dealing with a bad world. And he points out that <clears throat> the uh, the event, as he calls it, uh, the, the catastrophe that uh, uh, led to his losing an arm, a leg, and an eye, which is, for many, would be an insurmountable uh, not as bad as you would think. Not as bad as you would think for a lot of people. Um, I did a lot of research for this. The, Lucas's uh, prosthetics kind of came to me. I was uh, checking out a rehabilitation center for a friend who had lost the use of his leg, and I went down to talk to the director to get him a spot. And he says, "Oh, you've had an easy spring. We haven't had the uh, the motors. We call them the donor cycles, but we haven't had the donor cycles come in because you know it's been lousy weather. So we haven't. Nobody's, you know, no no part of paraplegics coming, and so we've got plenty of space." And he took me to one of the little anterooms where guys were playing cards and there was an electrician who had lost both of his arms and both of his legs on the job. He'd been hit with, I don't know, 4,800 volts or something. And Francois wasn't even concerned. Like he, it had happened in his life and now he was moving on. That's the old me, this is the new me, here I go. And I met an awful lot of people there who had lost limbs, either double amputees or access that you'd think that, wait a second, this is going to stop somebody in the tracks, and a lot of, some people, absolutely, some people lose a hand, and that's it, it's the end of their life, it's, it's woe is me, but an awful lot of, we're a resilient species, you know, as an organism, I find this fascinating, so it, it's not as bad as you would think with, with uh, I don't know what the stats are, but if you look at the people that go through accidents like that, they're actually better than one would think as far as emotional outcome. Although, as, as we've discussed, uh, uh, Lucas lives in New York City, which is a place that's not kind no. to disabled people. Uh, there it's are not st- kind to ab- fully abled people either. No. It's not kind to anyone. It's not kind to anyone. And, and we'll talk a little bit about uh, some of the things that, that happened to the denizens of the city. But um, it, there are a lot of stairs. There's stairs in his house. There are stairs uh, up and down to the subway, although uh, I don't think he's taken the subway in either of the books. But regardless, there are stairs. Yeah. He's, yes. he's a professor, uh, I believe, at NYU? Uh, Columbia. Columbia. Uh, where, there are a lot of, where there are a lot of stairs. A yes. lot of stairs. <laughs> lots of stairs. Lots of stairs to get there. Lots of stairs once you're there. Um, so, and he talks about that. And he talks about the balance and having prosthetics on, on either sides and and the sort of the vision challenges he has being blind in one eye. Yeah. I know you can cope being blind in one eye, but it's more difficult than having two functioning eyes. So I just, you know, I... Oh, absolutely, I, absolutely, yeah. Anyway, <clears throat> in Under Pressure, which is the second installment uh, after City of Windows, which came out last year... Uh, you start the book in the first chapter with an explosion, which is mind-blowing <clears throat> in all respects. And you fictionally destroy the Guggenheim Museum. And once Lucas is called back into service to investigate, because he's been with the FBI, he's come back, he's left, he's come back. It reminded me that everything is physics. 
an equation of mass, energy, and speed, um, yes. or velocity, if we want to use actual physics terms. And that's what Lucas brings to the party, as it were. And I thought making a character an astrophysicist is really unique and brilliant, both for the reader and for the character. So are you an astrophysicist in your part-time? Yes, in the garage I have a whole physics lab. No, no, not at all. Actually, I'm not, I'm not a very mathematical person at all. Uh, after high school, uh, math and, and physics and chemistry, uh, and I parted ways never to, you know, reconnect. Um, <laughs> that being said, I think I'm probably more scientifically literate than the average, uh, you know, North American. Uh, because I make an effort in that department, but uh, no, I'm not. Uh, but that being said, I mean, you know, astronomy something's always interested me. Um, there are, I guess, facets of, of this that come into my life and my interests. But no, I have no physical training or, or, or educational training or, or uh, a physics background. So you, we touched on this earlier in our conversation. Uh, fake news and its fellow travelers, uh, social media and conspiracy theorists. Uh, alongside the investigation are, are throngs claiming that the bombings going on and under pressure are a false flag. And a false flag is something that the government would be doing. A government could do uh, a bombing and, and point a finger at someone else, and that's a false flag. So the purported bomber claims to be calling on humanity to shed all electronics. You know, let's, let's all go Luddite. Uh, throw their devices onto the pyres that the bomber or bombers are igniting all over New York City. And many are following the call. And, and so what, me, what, what struck me in, as reading this is there's no limitation on gullible. Oh. Um, and it's not hard to see where that comes from. But as a person who eschews social media, and that's you, um, how did it feel to do a deep dive for the sake of the story? Was it? Uh, well, it wasn't that much of a. It wasn't that much of a deep dive in. Uh, sorry, did you finish the question? I, just I, I finished the question. Yeah, uh, I know it was long winded, and I apologize. No, I just didn't want to cut you off. Um, I'm not sure it was that much of a deep dive, and I, I mean, I'm a child of the late 20th, early 21st century. So I mean, uh, everything from television to, to the internet to Netflix to, to Twitter to Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat, Grinder. I mean, everything has you know is, is on the table every day as soon as I click on on the web. Um, I avoid, so I understand social media to a degree, and I know what its what purported purpose and intent is. It's just not something I want to be involved in. Um, and it's not that complicated of a bubble once you start looking. What's, there's, there's a lot of lines of demarcation in social media, and it's basically just this, I find it a cesspool for hatred and betrayal, so people can, you know, get sanctimonious and point fingers at others, for the most part. Right, and it helps to fuel the story because, you know, yes, yes. rumors fly very, very fast in, in, without social media. With social media, there, it's, it's light speed. It's astounding. Yeah, it's astounding. Yeah. And, and light speed, I don't mean that figuratively. I mean that it's, no, 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 light, it, it's light speed. It's when you push the send button, uh, yeah. the signals are going. And, and I think that that's the sort of thing in a city like New York where there is for all the traffic, um, it is an easy city to get around quickly if you know how. Oh, absolutely, yes. It's a big, it's a big grip, uh, absolutely. Uh, the, the thing that turned me on to the social media, that when I really started to understand it was a force to be reckoned with, was uh, during the Arab Spring. Um, and I, people are organizing a revolution via Twitter, and I just found that amazing. 
so it's, and it, I mean, it's been used for good things, uh, but as we're seeing, the longer it goes on, I think things like Facebook and Twitter are, are, are not being used necessarily for the, for the betterment of, you know, whatever they're happens not, of mankind. They're not being used for the good of humanity. No, 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 no. So as the story progresses, he gets deeper and deeper into it. And, and I think, you know, I don't want to introduce any spoilers uh, because the endings are a surprise. And yet each of the characters is fully formed, even the ones that eventually die. And uh, do you spend a lot of time building these characters? Are they, are they something that, sort of, that you live with these people that maybe a character came to you in a previous book uh, and you didn't have a place for him or her in that story, so he, he just sort of had to hang out in the backyard of your imagination before you brought him that's a good question. I, I tend, I don't think in this, I mean, I don't get me wrong, there are chunks of writing from other things that I've kept, obviously. Uh, but I tend to, you know, lately things have been just coming from scratch. Like this whole book, I didn't salvage anything. Uh, and it's, as far as making the characters believable, that's, I mean, that, that's one of the strengths I think I have as a writer is, is bringing great characters to a page or, or giving them life. So it's just something I do. I just really bust my ass to make sure that whoever you're reading about, whether it's the guy at the convenience store that's, you know, selling Tylenol or, you know, a, a doorman standing in front of a building, that you feel that it's an actual person there, just not, you know, some trope that's put in to open the door for Lucas or to sell him Tylenol. Exactly. You've done this with, the, you know, the people running bodegas and uh, to his, in the first book, his uh, assistant who has uh, Asperger's, and, yeah. and he sort of digs that because she doesn't uh, talk to him. You know, yeah, or, put, no or put up with the stupidity. Yeah, exactly. Or put up with the stupidity from the students, which is what he really loves about her. <laughs> You're very, very hard on these students. <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> and I mean, I, I, I kind of appreciate that because, of course, uh, when you when you have gotten into a, a school like NYU or Columbia, you really think you're you're the top of your game, and you're really probably not. Oh, you're supposed to rise to the occasion. I mean, that, that, that's, that's what, you know, the Institutes of Better and Higher Learning are supposed to be about. You get there, you think you know something, you realize you don't know anything, and hopefully you latch on to that for the rest of your life. Exactly. If, if anything, going to a university like that should do its best to teach you how to think. And if Absolutely. that's all you learn, then you're, you're ahead of the game. Oh, 100%. That's, I, I had a friend who was uh, in, in school taking photography at university, and he was going to drop out, and we had a talk. And I said, look, man, you've only got a year and a half left, but you've done half the program. Stick with it. It's, it's not about you know, learning how to, how, how to you know, do a skill or learning a skill set. It's about learning how to learn. I said, that's what future employers are going to look at. And since he's gotten out of school, he's thanked me a couple of times. So, yeah, absolutely. Well, hopefully. That's what I'm future yeah, Well, hopefully. Yeah, don't, yes. So you can't argue with math, uh, and yet many people inside and outside of your books do. Yes. Uh, if anything, I found under pressure an acknowledgement of the indisputableness of math and science. And yet accepting magical thinking seems to be just as strong an urge, and, and that's sort of a counterbalance. So what are we going to do? Uh, and more directly, uh, what does Lucas Page plan to do in his next book? Ah, well, well, Lucas, would, would, if you're talking to Lucas about math, he would tell you, look, there's one rule in math that you can't forget. One plus one always equals two, except when it doesn't. 
So he will admit this. There's going to be exceptions. What's Lucas going to do in the next book? Uh, the next book, doctors start getting killed in New York City, and Lucas refuses to go back to the FBI. Um, he's not interested in going back. Him and Aaron realize that they've had enough of fun and games. Uh, Aaron is his wife, and they've talked about it and decided he's not going back. Um, so we will see how that unfolds. And before, uh, that's usually my last question, but something just occurred to me that I sure. forgot to type down, uh, which is Lucas's counterfoil at the FBI. And I, I don't mean Whitaker. I don't mean the, the woman with whom he's partnered from in both stories, but uh, Kehoe, is that how it's Mr. pronounced? Key. Yeah, yeah, Brett Kehoe, exactly. Brett Kehoe. And he is kind of fascinating. As a matter of fact, I, I think he could be his own series. He's oh, absolutely. Kehoe is one of those characters. I actually, in the first three drafts of the first book, Kehoe got killed. And then I realized, wait a second, I need this guy back because he's a wonderful, I mean, he's, he's, he's this Faustian character. He's kind of like, you know, Satan in the Garden of Eden in, in, in Milton's Paradise Lost, whispering these wonderful things into Lucas's ear and always promising him things. You know, the subtext is he's promising him his old life back. You know, come work for me and you could be like you used to be. Uh, so I, I like the menace and the, and the, and the, the sort of danger and the, the uncaringness that comes from, uh, from Keogh. He's this, he's this sort of reptilian character in the background that comes across as being, you know, a human being, but when you scratch at the paint a little bit, you know, you see the lizard underneath. Right, and he's, I, I like that he is, he's perfectly dressed and he drinks tea. Yes. Well, those are things, I mean, that, that's just... You know, you write. That's one of those things you can come up with. You have no idea where things come from. They come from outer space. He drinks tea. And says, hey, wait a second. This is the guy that drinks tea. And all of a sudden, you have a character that drinks tea that people mention. It's, it's wild how this writing thing works out. Well, I got to tell you, we all look forward, at least I look forward to the next Lucas page. And I have to ask you, uh, your uh, publicist at Minotaur Books, someone with whom I get along uh, pretty well, Hector Dijon, and Actually, Hector is great. Wrote a little piece about him. Uh, well, about him and me, because we've both been, you, our names have been used as characters in books. His way more than mine, but uh, there you go. And uh, he said that you rarely uh, sit for interviews. And so I have to understand, other than the fact that I'm from Quebec originally. Um, oh, that I didn't know. All ah, right. you see, I thought you knew that. No, no, um, I had no idea. And, and after the interview, maybe we'll geek for a minute or two on, <laughs> okay. on Quebec. Um, it, I wonder why you decided to sit for an interview with me. And this is not an ego thing. I'm no, 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 no. I, I will tell you. I'll tell you about this. Uh, I don't do interviews. I like the, as, I mean, as you can tell, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable talking to people. I don't mind discussing everything from, you know, art to, to religion to, you know, to sex. I'm cool with that. I don't understand necessarily the relationship between the book that I put out and doing an interview with you. And I know that the ultimate goal for the publisher is that they want to sell books. So I understand that that's the goal, but I don't understand how talking to the writer, I see the writer as a completely independent being from the product they produce. Um, I don't know if that makes sense to you, but the, the book that... Well, I'm a writer, so yeah. It, it okay, so, the, so, so there you know. So sending a novel out or a book out of the world is a very surreal experience. So I understand that all the work I did is between these two covers, and that's, that makes sense that people enjoy that. How me talking about how I came up with it, I don't understand how, how that's part of the, of, of the process for people. So it's not that I don't like doing the interviews. It's just I don't understand necessarily... 
why they're connected to the writing. Otherwise, I, don't, I have no problem doing them. I just, I, I don't understand what my purpose is with an interview. Does well, that make I, sense? It, it, it does on one level. Uh, for me, as a person who interviews people about their books, and the, the purpose, the reason I started this podcast before everybody had a podcast, as a matter of fact, I've contemplated ending the podcast when I read an article about how everybody has a podcast. That said, um, I think the process by which writers come up with books is fascinating. Oh, I, I, agree with, I agree with that, yeah. And I think the direction that writers take characters and story um, is also fascinating. And I think that devotees of the genre, and I really use that word reluctantly because I, I don't like pigeonholing mysteries and thrillers into some sort of sub-literary place, because that's not true. Uh, No, but it is is the big slow movie beast of popular fiction, too. I mean, this is not, you know, we're not reinventing the wheel. I'm not, you know, we're not... No, you're not not reinventing the wheel, but but the writers that are currently plying their trade in mystery and thriller and crime fiction in general are among the best writers working. So yes. if you've got someone like Denise Mina or Val McDermott or uh, Michael Connolly or... Uh, or Dennis Lehane. Dennis Lehane, and I'm blanking on the name of the man who wrote November Road. Um, it just... These are among the most phenomenal writers writing and they're writing stories and they're writing stories with the beginning middle and end character development and something oh, yeah, there's some top of the line people doing this absolutely so uh, that's one of the reasons i do it and that's one of the reasons i wanted to talk to you and i wanted to talk about your book and how your book sort of developed you know the the questions about you know did you have a character uh, sort of waiting in the wings that's I find that fascinating I find the process that um, a writer and his characters I find the process between a writer and his characters a little actually more interesting than the story well that's, that's one of the one of the reasons I do I am doing some interviews for this book and that I, I get to externalize a very or I get to discuss externally a very internal process so the questions that you asked, you know, three of them I haven't heard before, and they're good questions. They make me think about the process because, I mean, you write. It, it's kind of trying to explain to somebody how you run, you know? How, like, how do you run? Well, you just One you run. in front of the other. Yeah, yeah. How do you write? Well, you sit down and you write. I mean, in, in, in absolute terms, that's what it's about. But there's all these little things that we learn as writers along the way that, that, that hopefully can help other people. And that is another, that's the main reason I like doing this. If I can help one person that used to be like me, that, 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 wanted to be a writer and didn't know how to get going with the whole process, that makes it worthwhile, you know? And I mean that really, I'm not, I'm not being facetious. We all have that one magical book on our bookshelf that just made us go, Oh my God, if I could do this, I I would, it would, it's, it's what I want to do, you know? So that's the part that I do enjoy. Well, Rob, I think that you did it. So, (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you. I'm getting, I'm getting some pretty good uh, email. I, gotta, I can't complain. And I want to thank you for sitting down with us and talking to us about Under Pressure and a little bit 
about what's coming up. And uh, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Uh, pleasure is entirely mine.